The climate is changing. So are we. I'm Laura Lynch, and I host What on Earth? That's CBC's Climate Solutions podcast. Twice a week, we take you around the world to find the people who are trying to build a better future for all of us. We explore Indigenous science, new technologies. We talk openly about mental health and climate anxiety. We also take your smart questions all the time. Come find What on Earth wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Welcome to the Sunday Magazine Podcast, featuring the stories we first brought you Sunday, September 17th on CBC Radio. You don't have to look very far to see how climate change is reshaping our landscape and lives. This weekend, post-tropical storm Lee lashed Atlantic Canada with strong winds and heavy rain. And that's where we're headed in just a moment. After that, calls to action are being chanted on streets here at home and beyond amidst the climate crisis. And documenting our changing planet has been at the heart of Ed Bertinsky's career. The renowned Canadian photographer will be by later on. Longtime climate justice champion Naomi Klein will join me. She put her activism on the back burner when the pandemic hit, and she'll tell us how it led her into a mirror world of online conspiracy theories. And then, this fashion season, discover how the war in Ukraine prompted its local vogue to shift coverage from beauty to the battlefield. That's all starting right now on the Sunday Magazine podcast. Post-tropical storm Lee started cutting across Atlantic Canada yesterday, bringing with it high seas and hard winds as it made landfall first on Long Island, Nova Scotia, north of Yarmouth, before moving across the Bay of Fundy to New Brunswick. This morning, tens of thousands of people are without power and the cleanup is getting underway. CBC reporter Brett Ruskin is in Yarmouth in southwest Nova Scotia. Brett, good to have you with us. Good morning. Good morning, Pia. I can hear noises behind you. Uh, what do things sound look like where you are? You know, this is the, the benefit, the, the nice side of the coin. After a day of covering and being just drenched for 12 hours standing <laughs> in the rain, I'm standing on a beach, wide, sandy beach. Those are the waves crashing behind me. There's seagulls, uh, there's a lighthouse off in the distance. This is, uh, it's a, a calm after the storm. Okay, and... You're on the beach, but other people, I'm sure, are assessing the damage and kind of looking around. We'll get to that in a sec. But what would you say the mood is like after Lee? Uh, A a bit of a a sigh of relief, um, just because, I mean, we we had seen Hurricane Fiona about a year ago. We can talk about that. But this morning, um, people are, you know, walking their dogs, happy that the storm has passed this area, at least. We're still seeing lots of... um, impacts and effects elsewhere in the Maritimes, kind of up in in New Brunswick, headed towards PEI right now, um, with wind and rain still in some areas. But for the most part, um, people were prepared for this one. And 
and uh, got through it okay. So, Brett, I don't know if you keep count, but you have covered a lot. Um, you live in the Atlantic, in Atlantic Canada, a lot of hurricanes, a lot of storms. And I know Lee, thankfully, didn't pack the punch that um, might have been. But how, how did the storm sort of compare? Yeah, it... There's nothing scientific about this, but it seems like it kind of ebbs and flows how prepared people are. If we have a couple of, you know, dull, dud storms, uh, folks may not, you know, take the next one as seriously. And so in this case, it was the opposite. We had hurricane or post-tropical storm Fiona, just goes by Fiona in these parts, um, about one year ago, almost exactly one year ago. That had a big impact. People had lost power for hours if they were lucky days weeks in some cases with lots of damage lots of destruction and so it feels like people were ready for the worst or ready for a bad storm this didn't turn out to be as bad but people were prepared for it and so this one um certainly windy some trees down in some places but not the worst we've seen as you said fiona there were lessons learned not just for individuals and households but uh, on a larger scale for instance uh, nova scotia power uh, made some changes in, in preparing for for this storm. There was changes to telecommunications uh, because things didn't go as well as people would have liked uh, during Fiona. So how, how did those sort of infrastructure things hold up this time around? Yeah, it, it was better, but not perfect. So um, a quick recap of what happened last time to get those emergency alerts that so many people rely on your phone has to have cell phone service and to have cell phone service you need a cell tower that works to have a cell tower that works you need electricity and if you don't have electricity you need some kind of backup generator and so it turned out that there weren't enough backup generators there weren't enough battery packs on the cell towers so in some cases people couldn't receive those emergency alerts and in some cases couldn't make phone calls at all let alone getting data connection to find out details of what they needed to know so this time around, telecommunications companies said that uh, I think Bell Alliant had a hundred new generators installed at the base of their cell phone towers. Uh, Eastlink had 30 generators installed at theirs. And uh, to better prepare, and things were better, but still, in some cases, uh, confusing because you know you look down at your phone this was my experience you have three bars of service lte you should have data but it just wasn't loading so mm. that was an experience that lots of people were having through the storm but uh, things seemed to be better and bounce back this morning as you said there's trees down where you are in southwest nova scotia what about like the rest of the province and new brunswick which also got hit by lee yeah, so New Brunswick saw, it was kind of on the, the left-hand side of the storm, saw a lot more rain. So almost record-breaking levels in the Fredericton area, for example, even far from the coast. Uh, you saw more wind on the right-hand side of the track, kind of up in, in Halifax. The highest wind gusts actually were at the Halifax Stanfield International Airport, which is right in the middle of the province. So uh, didn't have to be along the coast to see the biggest impacts. Uh, and so we saw, because of the the intense rain we saw trees coming down in some cases in new brunswick there were um uh, there was a gas station that the underside the roof came collapsing down mm -hmm. um buddy was pumping the gas at the time he finished pumping his tank and then left he, he needed you know gas is hard to come by when uh, when some of the gas stations don't have electricity so but no injuries there either so and brett you know you said people obviously are breathing a sigh of relief this morning yes preparing for storms is nothing new in Atlantic Canada, but you know, the practical and physical preparations are one thing. There also is that emotional kind of, you know, prepping and then the hunkering down, crossing your fingers, hoping things are gonna 
go okay. And with the climate crisis, we know that we will be seeing more storms. The hurricane season isn't even over yet. Neither is a fire season in our country. What's the impact of all that on people emotionally? Atlantic Canadians, they've gone through wildfires, through floods, through uh, storms in just in the last few months. Yeah. So, I mean, I've been calling it the three F's. We had Fiona, we had the fires, we had the flooding. Uh, so the fires had 150 people in the Halifax area lose their homes. There was the flooding that killed four people. Fiona caused hundreds of millions of dollars of damage. So heading into this storm, I can tell you that people were worried. People were not worn out, but just, you know, oh, here we go again. Mm. Just another major uh, you could call it extreme weather event or serious, significant weather event. Um, but it's getting to be more and more common. And it feels like it is the uh, a new norm or at least the norm that we've seen over the last 12 months of more significant, more frequent uh, weather events here on the East Coast. All right, Brett, we'll leave it there. I'm glad things uh, weren't as bad as expected. Take good care of yourself. Thank you so much. That's CBC reporter Brett Ruskin in Yarmouth, Nova Scotia this morning. As you heard him say, though, the cleanup is still underway. Tens of thousands of people are still without power. So if you're one of those people or uh, and you need to save some power, just got a little bit of battery left on your mobile phone, um, you can get updates on our text-only website. That address is cbc.ca slash light. That's cbc.ca slash L-I-T-E. Lee is just the latest reminder of how the climate crisis is impacting Canadians in a summer that needs very few reminders. From fires to floods, from coast to coast to coast, it has been a rough number of months. And of course, the rest of the world has not been immune with fires in Hawaii and Greece, flooding in Libya and India, just to name a few. Around the world, people are taking to the streets this weekend for what organizers hope will be a return to the large-scale global climate rallies that took place prior to the pandemic. There's a huge march planned for this afternoon in New York City, where world leaders will be gathering for a United Nations Climate Ambition Summit, as well as the annual General Assembly in just a couple of days. Several protests have been happening in Canadian cities as well in Toronto yesterday and in Vancouver on Friday. Journalist Arno Kopetsky was at the Vancouver uh, rally. Arno, good morning to you. Good morning, Pia. What was the march like on Friday in Vancouver? Yeah, you know, it was vibrant, I would say. Um, thousands of people showed up. We we filled the streets. It was I showed up with my my daughter and my wife and uh, my daughter's seven and some of her friends were there. And there was it was a very family-friendly event and people of all ages. Great signage, uh, some carnival bands and really good music. Uh, so it was felt really good to come together and, you know, make some noise and be joyful and creative. Uh, we filled several city blocks, and I think the number count was right around 5,000 or mm. so people. So, you know, the vibe was really good. Um, it is also true that four years ago in 2019, the last time we had this happen, uh, the number was 100,000 people. So one twentieth uh, of that showed up this year. Uh, and so it's hard not to be, you know, a bit discouraged by yeah. that. What does that say to you that only, a, you know, a few thousand or 5,000 people showed up compared to 100,000 a number of years ago? Right. Well, and especially in light of the brutality of, of this summer, which which you just alluded to, um, to me, I think, the, and speaking to organizers uh, and a few people, I, I think what's really clear is that the pandemic really sucked a lot of the wind out of the climate movement, uh, at least the activist wing of, of the climate movement. Um, 
And obviously that happened in all sectors of society. One of the activists that I spoke to um, said, you know, well, activism and, and movement building, is, it's all about momentum. And 2019 going into that was in retrospect, really a high watermark for the movement. Uh, Extinction Rebellion had just sort of exploded onto the streets of London with super creative and high energy you know they they shut down london they they wheeled sailboats into the streets of downtown london and, and shut everything down and you know a few weeks later the uk declared a climate emergency greta thunberg was was cresting to fame and and you know she lent her star power to to the weekend uh, of 2019 and 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 a few things like that you know there was just all of this this momentum and i think that really brought millions of, of people out into the streets mm. and after four years of, of being, you know, stuck at home and, and afraid to gather and, and lots of you know money was lost by a lot of the organizations there, just a ton of organizing capacity uh, dissipated, I think, over the last four years. So on Friday, uh, what kinds of demands or requests were people on the streets making? What were their issues? Well, it's called the March to End Fossil Fuels. So the grand demand is that we wind down fossil fuel production and take care of the workers in the industry is, is twinned to that demand. Um, you know, the and the first step of stopping or winding down production is is to stop expanding. Uh, so, you know, the world is still expanding its, its fossil fuel production and the US and Canada respectively occupy number one and two uh, in terms of global expansion of, of fossil fuel production. And, and you know, Canada is the fourth biggest producer of oil in the world. Uh, production here has doubled since 2010, uh, in spite of what you hear from Alberta, uh, that we are constraining their production. Quite the opposite is true. So those were the the big picture demands. And then, um, you know, there's local things. There's a lot of uh, signs and, and noise about Trans Mountain Pipeline, which, of course, the terminus is here in Vancouver. And reconciliation, and and, and uh, that was a big theme that, that you saw. Um, but yeah, the, really, the big the big ask is I think they were trying to keep it simple and clear and direct was let's let's produce less hmm. fossil fuel than more. So Arno, when I introduced you, I called you a journalist. You are one. You've been covering uh, the mm -hmm. climate for two decades. But on Friday, you didn't go to this rally to cover it as a journalist. You went to participate um, as a regular person, and this is a choice, yeah. a shift that you have very deliberately made. What has led you to make that choice? Yeah, that's true. You know, um, I think this summer there was a moment, I think at the sort of near the end of July, when basically the end, the entire northern hemisphere uh, was just getting pummeled by combinations of heat waves that were stretching across three continents, uh, the forest fires that nobody needs me to remind them about, they're still burning right now, um, you know, floods, uh, everything was happening at once. And, you know, I've been I've been writing and thinking about climate change for almost 20 years. So it's not really a surprise, and yet it was still shocking and overwhelming uh, to just see that the, the the scale and the magnitude actually arrive. And it really got me to think, you know, well, is journalism enough? Is, is writing about this stuff enough? Or am I just sort of observing and, and being passive? And and I hit this moment of feeling like, well, what what can I do more of? I've I've always held. Uh, activism at some distance, both professionally as a journalist, wanting to have a clear boundary between myself and the people I'm, I'm writing about. Um, but also there's, you know, the language of activism is a language of, of certainty and answers. Um, 
it's similar to politics, I think, where you boil down, you sort of banish complexity and 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 try to be really clear and simple. And and I lean towards doubt and uncertainty and 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 questions. You know, mm. I, I have a tendency to question myself and others. And so I, I've I've had sort of an uneasy relationship with with activism for for some of those reasons. Um, but you know, there comes a time when you can just realize you maybe you're overthinking things a little bit and it's okay to get out into the streets mm-hmm. and, and make some noise. Um, because there are, if you step back, there are some things that are just extremely clear and the magnitude of the crisis that is bearing down on us and that is here is just, it's so clear and so emergent. And it's been clear for some time as a parent as well. I think it uh, it hasn't changed the way I feel, but it has perhaps deepened the way I feel. And so I, I, there just came a moment when I thought, you know, I'm going to put aside these weird principles and just get in the streets and, and make some noise and, and join the protesters. How'd that feel? It felt good. Hmm. Yeah, it felt great. It was really nice to, to be in there, you know, and to get together. It can be lonely, both as, you know, as any writer knows, but also being a particularly an, an environmental journalist, you know, people always sort of look at you sideways and pat you on the head and say, oh, that's nice. Um, so it felt good to get in a crowd with thousands of people who were clever and witty and, and fun and, and joyous and, and celebrate with them as, as well as make some demands. Um, you know, the, the, I, I would say that the marching part was was the best part. And then once the speeches settled in, it sort of reminded me that you don't go to a march looking for astute analysis of the complexity of the situation. Uh, you go to make some clear, simple demands. Hmm. So you wrote this book. Um, you know, we've been seeing the undeniable effects of the of climate change, the fires, the floods, the heightened storms. And yet so many of us keep filling up our cars or vehicles at the pump. You wrote this book called The Environmentalist Dilemma that sort of circles around that. Expe- expand on that dilemma for me and sort of like, did you come to any conclusions? Uh, well, you know, there's, to me, the biggest dilemma is just this is in spite of the turmoil of this moment uh this is a really amazing time to be alive i think our ancestors if they looked at us they would behold a parade of miracles of of our daily lives both in terms of technology and material life you know the the abundance and variety of food available at our supermarkets air travel computerization medical care but also in cultural terms you know we have democracy as flawed as it is We'll miss it when it's gone. Um, we have women's rights. We have gay marriage. We have weekends and minimum wages and all these things. And a lot of these things are, you know, not all of them, but many are the direct result of this explosion of energy that fossil fuel has provided. And so for me to come along and say, look, we have somebody like me or our movement to come along and say, look, we have to change everything and and uproot the way that we do everything you know how do you change everything without losing everything Hmm. that we have gained Um, and i think that is to me a a central dilemma both in terms of actually executing that but also in in sort of communicating that message Um, and from that dilemma many others flow among them you know how do i talk about this i'm talking to you right now for national radio should i be trying to scare people about climate change or should i be trying to inspire them with you know, the renewable energy uh, revolution that is underway as well. There's a lot of hopeful narratives as well as a lot of dark narratives. So choosing which narrative to pursue and, and to share is just one tiny dilemma. I could, you know, there, I have a child, you have children. Um, another dilemma that many people think about is, is it okay to have children right mm. now, given what's coming? And, and how many is it okay to have? 
And if I have them, is it okay for them to fly to Montreal to visit their grandparents? Or is that not good? You know, yeah. all, all of these things, I, I think we're all complicit in this, in this really extravagant society that is, that is really reliant on, on fossil fuels at the moment. And so extricating ourselves from that is, is just an immensely complex affair. And engaging with this story involves, uh, you know, trade-off after trade-off. And mm -hmm. so uh, that, when I was writing the book, I was trying to explore some of those trade-offs and, and looking at how people engage. And if you're asking me if I came to any conclusions, I think it is that to the extent that I did, there's, there's no one way to engage. I think, it, I think there are as many ways to engage as there are people. Mm -hmm. And um, I suppose not engaging really is is the one option that there isn't even if you think you're just not going to get involved um well then guess what it, it's coming for you anyways i think it's important always to put words um to how you're feeling and probably because other people are feeling that way and just what you said there i think so many people are feeling that that, that dilemma that fear um that hopelessness yes there is some hope um but also mm. and then we have this the cost of living like there's just so much going on yeah, um totally so what's your demand if i can put it that way arno of government or society like right now on september 17th 2023 when you're thinking about this what's the most important thing you want to see happen you know, I, I guess I would just love to have an adult conversation about this. I feel like it descends very quickly into sort of sneering of, oh, well, there's what's the carbon tax done for you? There's still forest fires. You know, you hear those kinds of comments, um, I think. And I guess to criticize my own team, I think we can be a little bit glib about how easy it's going to be to just switch from uh, fossil fuel infrastructure to solar panels and, and wind power. Um, I, yeah, so I think I would like to see people just, you know, can we recognize that uh, oil has given us great things and it is now delivering immense, terrible consequences? And let's confront this uh, seriously um, with mutual respect and, yes, start winding down fossil fuels as aggressively as we can, um, bearing all of those things in mind. It's been great to hear from you, Arno, and thanks so much for getting up early and joining me today. Much appreciated. Oh, thanks, Pia, for covering this issue. I really appreciate it, too. Take, take good care. Uh, Arno Kopetsky is a journalist and activist in Vancouver. You're listening to the Sunday Magazine podcast. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Documenting the impact humans have had on our planet has been the life's work of Edward Bertinsky. Ed's one of the world's most celebrated photographers. His images are at once beautiful and they're brutal. Giant vistas of oil refineries and scrapyards, rivers of day-glow-colored mine tailings, forests scarred by logging. And it's work that perhaps more than ever speaks to today's climate crisis. But how that work came to be is deeply entwined with Ed Bertinsky's past. Ed, hi. It is nice to see you in person. Great to be here. I haven't here, seen Pia. you in years. It's, it's really good to have people back in the studio. Let's start where you sort of started, which is St. Catharines, Ontario, where you grew up. It's an industrial town, home to a General Motors plant for, I think, about eight decades, right? It closed down in 2010. And so take me back to your childhood. How formative was that plant for you? So I was born in 55, and then by 1962, I was seven years old, and my father worked at the GM plant. It was called the McKinnon plant at that time off Ontario Street in St. Catharines. And at that time, they actually had open houses, and they allowed kids to come in. And I used to drive by there almost uh, on a weekly basis for sure, and you can hear the big pounding forges. 
So I can see this brick wall and I can hear the sound, but I never knew what was behind the wall. Mm. And then my father took the family to the open house and and there for the first time I see molten metal going down through chutes into building the engine block. I see the, it was a steering knuckle they were making there at the time when you need a forge press because it needs the strength because it needs to have tensile strength and be able to resist you know road bumps and things like that. So it was forged. And these red hot ingots are being flipped by these guys in silver suits and and the earth shakes, and that was the noise I was hearing when we would drive by. It was like the classic 24-7 noise because the forges worked all the time. And just seeing those forges, and, and, and it was kind of understanding for the first time as a seven-year-old that the car I'm driving in, I had no idea that this is the world, hmm. that this other world exists to make this thing that we just start in the morning and go somewhere with. And I think that really sparked my curiosity as to what is that other world that exists that allows this world to be the one I live in, uh, in my home and the food that comes in the car I drive around and the plane I get on. So, so I think in a way that was the very original curiosity that began to spark. And, and my father also had a, a deep interest in all things natural, mushroom foraging, fishing, uh, camping out. So I, I learned all that with him. And then also, you know, he, he had a love of engineering. He was always suggesting things in the plant and, and building things himself. So he had that kind of natural kind of engine. My, fr- my brother ended up being an engineer. And I studied to be an engineer when I was huh. in St. Catharines, so at least a mechanical engineer. And my brother became one. And so he's an aerospace engineer. And so your dad also gave you your first camera and built a darkroom in your basement, right, when you were a teenager. So did he also have an artistic streak in addition to all these other things he he was interested in? Yeah, he always wanted to be an artist. And he came from an artisan town, which I I was planning to go to in Ukraine in 2020, and then COVID hit, and then I was going to go 2021. And then, of course, COVID hit again, and then I was going to go 2022. And of course, the war started. So I wanted to go and see where the town he came from, which was an artisanal town. I'd never been to it. In fact, I'd never seen an aunt or an uncle or a cousin or a grandparent or anything. It was just my parents. So it was always interesting to me, you know, this other world and where my creativity came from. But I know that he had it too. And I even found correspondence and art courses he was taking to learn how to draw better. He did all the stage designs at the community center mm. in St. Catharines. And I was always painting alongside him. From when I was seven, I was doing oil paintings of landscapes with him and uh, really? using with oil. So making art was bred into me. It was like, and, and so f- for my whole life, if I'm not making things, I feel like I'm not living or something's missing. So your dad passes away when you're you're young, you're 15. Yep. And you got siblings, and you you, you step up, you got to help support the family. Um, now that your dad's gone, and at the same time, pay for your artistic study. So off you go, Ed, to work in that same GM plant that you talked about that made such an impression on you when you were younger. And you also go on to work at a gold mine in northern Ontario. How did those early experiences as a laborer shape, do you think, how you now view and have for the last number of years large-scale industry? I I actually remember when I was thinking of coming to Ryerson, now TMU, for the first time, because I used to see the towers from St. Catharines on a clear day. You can see Toronto Towers from the canal area. And I used to go fishing by the canal, and on the clear days I could see the city, but I never had stood amongst the towers. And then when I think I was 17 was the first time I actually walked into downtown Toronto, and I stood amongst the towers. And I was thinking of going to Ryerson to go to school for photography. 
and it was a, kind of like a for a kid, you know, overwhelming, almost like a sublime experience. Like these massive buildings, and I here I am, like standing at the feet of them, looking up. And if you ever stood in the middle of Commerce Court, it is quite yeah. spectacular. You know, if you've never seen anything like that standing in the things that I saw from the shoreline in St. Catharines. And it occurred to me that, that, and I had worked in industry, and it, I started to put the yin and the yang together, that to create these towers, there was an equal or greater act of destruction to create these things. And that, in fact, I started to understand that our whole existence, you know, the act of destruction is greater than the act of creation because we use way more material. Like if you look at a copper mine, you know, out of a ton of copper, you might get five pounds of copper and the rest is waste. Out of uh, a ton of of gold uh, ore, you might get a half an ounce of gold out of a ton that's to be crushed and removed. So you start looking at the the energy and the amount of disruption it takes to bring the things to us is extraordinary. And so I started to think very early on of how do I capture visually this other part of what it is to live in our time? And and at the core of all of it is is uh, the technological evolution, the tool making that we've been able to do. And and so looking in these factories and looking at these tools, the big machines that fill the 400-ton trucks that are tower 20 feet high with tires that are 14 feet high, I mean, just standing in the land of giants, it was still that, mm-hmm. you know, most of us don't get a chance to experience that. And I did firsthand experience it, putting myself through school and making my own way through university. And so that continued to inform me the work that I was doing. And so you're connecting the dots between the industry that is part of your family's workplace, but also then you come to Toronto, you're like, wow, look at these big buildings and connecting all those dots. And as I understand it, Ed, and tell me if I'm wrong, you get this assignment when you're at school here in Toronto to go back to St. Catharines that was pivotal for you, kind of like further connecting these dots. Yeah, it was my first teacher of mine, Rob Gubilar, in first year, and he was became a friend and then died quite young as well. But he gave me the assignment, uh, go out and photograph evidence of man. And the immediate thing that came to mind was the things that we kind of, that are left behind, the things that are forsaken, like ruins, you know, that that there's evidence of some life that occurred here. And we try to glean who were these people that left Mm. us behind? What was that life like at that time and all? So I went to, I knew that the Welland Canal had moved through St. Catharines through four different routes. That one route was actually right through my backyard, what the Queen Elizabeth Highway that goes right through the middle of St. Catharines used to be the canal. Mm. And Victoria School, which is a school I used to go to, kids who were lived on the other side of the canal always had an excuse if they were late by the bridge was up. Mm-hmm. And that was always <laughs> fascinating because that was now a highway. And I used to look at it. I used to imagine that ships used to go by that yeah. same thing. You know, So I went back and searched all the past routes of the canal and found little vestiges, little pieces of it in the city that still stood there as evidence that the canal used to go through there. And it was, again, that kind of the fact that we live in a layered kind of world where histories have occurred and new ones are being born all the time, far more in, in Europe, of course. You know, ruins and follies were, were you know, if you didn't have a rune in your, in your country <laughs> estate, you made one, right? Because it was, again, something that evokes a kind of a melancholy or a mystery about about the past and who we are as humans and the kind of values we had then versus what we have today. So there, I think there is a kind of a deep archetype for us as humans to look at these past worlds. Or if you've ever walked through an old farmhouse and it was abandoned, there's still things left well, in you're it. You're imagining you know. what it was all like. Yeah, it's the same kind of feeling. So is it fair to say 
that that assignment was an aha moment where you thought to yourself that industry could and should really be interrogated through your art? Well, it it was even though I'm I'm as much you know implicated in the whole human enterprise as anybody else, but it, it gave me a, a kind of a hall pass to like be an alien. Like if I was an alien coming to this planet and somebody said, "Bring me evidence of what the most sophisticated species on the planet is doing," the, the, what I've done for my whole life is the answer to that question. Hmm. If I had to go back and say, this is what we did. These are the cities we built. This is the factories we built our machines with. This is the dams that we created, the biggest dams in the world. So everything I've done is the largest examples of agriculture, of infrastructure, of biggest cities in the world. Everything has that kind of research to say you'd be hard-pressed to find a greater example of this than the one I've brought forward in through my films and through my photographs. So in a way, it is the answer to that question that I've been working on for my whole life. I wonder in the far future if someone might think of you as, they might refer to you as an anthropologist in that way. I feel it is a bit of that. I feel it is a bit of excavating all of the the kinds of things that Again, technology being at the core of it, and in all of my thinking, the internal combustion engine, starting with the steam engine and then turning you know, coal and steam and converting that through metallurgy to be able to have the explosion occur within a cylinder it became the internal combustion engine, and then that being the key invention that now brings us 100 and some odd years later to this existential crisis of we are now shifting the planet to uh, another epoch. A lot of your more recent work has focused on mining. I want to talk to you about that. I mean, you started this back in the 80s, and you, you come back to mining. Most recently in Africa, we know, I think, as Canadians, that we have a large uh, mining industry. What keeps you coming back to mining? What is it about mining, and what is the conversation that you, through your work, want to spark right now? Well, mining to me, it's not only an activity, but it's a great metaphor. It's this kind of pursuit of value that we find something in the world that can create value. And mining goes after things that have a a scarcity. There's only so much gold. There's only so much copper. There's only so much iron. And you have to go to those places and you have to. And so great wealth can be created through the pursuit of these things. And mine is a matter for everything. You know, I'm mining for opportunities in my career. It doesn't matter what your career is, a graphic artist or whatever, but it's still that a deep human kind of underpinning of survival. So it still is something I'm constantly thinking about and photographing. It is the most enduring subject matter. I did quarries too, but I did them for 17 years and then stopped. I figured I'd done enough. But mining, there's something that keeps bringing you back. And I think it's the scale of it and that the landscapes that it creates are like alien landscapes. You know, in the exhibition I did in the wake of progress, one of the things I said is like the la- I search for landscapes that look like they are from an alien planet, but they're ours. Mm. They're, we've made them. And so there is this kind of surreal scale and disruption that, that, that they cause. Yeah. So I've made the, I don't know if mistake is the right word, but at looking at your work and kind of floating off in the beauty and all of it, and then having to remind myself of that exact point that you're just making, that this is here, this isn't just... Your photographs are beautiful. Like if you see, if you don't think about the context of what it is and what else, you could just look at that and say, that is gorgeous. And then you have to remind yourself, I think, of all the work, all the sacrifice, all the compromise, all the consequences of mining in your photographs. 
Yeah, and as an artist, I mean, and oftentimes I feel like I'm somehow out of sync with the postmodern world because I'm doing something that allows what I feel to communicate on a level that I understand that, that you know I have come from a, a simpler background of a blue call, and so I I'm trying to keep that part of my level of communication alive that if I chased what is the latest hottest thing in art I think I would make something that I wouldn't but it wouldn't kind of somehow connect directly to my root to me and to where I came from so to be true to my time and to be true to myself felt like a bet that I wanted to make and willing to kind of sacrifice a lot of things and possibly not getting into the most contemporary shows and all that but still feeling that you know through aesthetic and through invoking a sense of wonder when you stand in front of something and say, this is a part of our world, but what am I looking at? Yeah. You know, and how, where does this come from? And when the viewer's there, I, I think there's a chance to connect. There's a chance to communicate something. Trust me, I can make a really lousy picture of a mind if I wanted to. They're, they're, they're not, <laughs> they are very hard to create into something that invokes wonder, that makes you stop and think about it. And, and so to me, that is the crafting something out of where no one believes there is something to be crafted from, something that we would walk by and say, well, why? Like when I photograph refineries here in Oakville, Four or five times the workers would come to me, what on yeah. earth are you photographing here? Yeah. How could you It's find... mundane. It's boring. There's nothing I interesting. I work here. It stinks. It's awful. Like, how can you see anything in this? And then I'd show them the pictures next time, and they'd go, oh, wow. I had no idea that you could see this in this place. So it is that kind of alchemy that you take something that has no value and you somehow turn it into something that has meaning and value. And to me, as an artist, that is the exciting moment. And I, and I do think that people connect with it. And it doesn't matter where on the spectrum you find. I, I often find if you find something that works in between the right and the left, poor and rich, you know, religious, non-religious, those are the big forces that we live within. And if you could actually get attention from people from all sides of that spectrum, and they can have connection to that, then you're, I think, working in a level of the philosophic versus the political. To that point, you've said that um, a photo of yours could sit on a corporate wall or it could sit on an environmentalist wall. Right. And is that why, Ed, why you reject a label that some other people have given you, which is like you're an activist as well as a photographer or a photographer who's an activist or an activist photographer. I think somebody recently referred to me as an artivist. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, uh, no, but it, I think it's a, it's subversive activism, if anything. It's not, I'm not using the images as an indictment against the corporations that made these places. You know, I too am in jet to go to these countries. I am using helicopters from time to time. Or and they to, put food on your table for your family when you're young. Yeah. Your family worked in these industries. Yeah, so it's, it's it's not like I'm saying that we can actually cease and desist. And I think it's naive to think that we can. But ultimately, where I feel an urgency is happening, and I think if you're not feeling this urgency, you're not paying attention, but that we're just not moving fast enough and that things are moving away from us quicker than we can think we can control. And so urgency and, and that what is at the key to where we are now today, I think, is transition and, and a just transition to make sure that those are, are moving out of one industry, you know, have opportunity in another industry and, and that we somehow bridge that period. So, you know, we try to 
mitigate as much of the harm that's going to happen to people in this transition from an oil economy into an alternative economy that is more sustainable, that can't happen fast enough. And anything that's standing in its way needs to be dealt with, needs to be confronted. And so this summer, when you looked at um, the fires and the flooding we've had in this country, what was the big sort of theme or idea or feeling that has sort of wrapped your attention with all of this? That this is the opening, that we're at the beginning of this, that we haven't seen the worst of it yet, and it's coming. And and uh, and I was just doing some work on the the remaining glaciers on the coastal mountains in BC, just north of Whistler, and and it's heartbreaking because I'm looking at something that's already half of what it was 30 years ago. And in 30 years, 25 to 30 years, my daughters won't be able to see it. It'll be gone. Yeah, and it's not just the ability to see it. It's the consequences of it not being there as well. Yeah, that's right. And what happens to the rivers downstream and all of that. So it is very painful to see what's happening if you care about humanity, if you care about life on Earth and consciousness and what we've done as humans. Because I think, you know, go back to da Vinci and Michelangelo and Mozart, our consciousness and our intelligence has brought beautiful things into the world and look at the things that we built and the things that we've made. And and so I do, I'm a humanist at the core. I don't want to see our consciousness uh, disappear. Let's just talk a bit about Ukraine because you're a kid of Ukrainian immigrants, spoke Ukrainian growing up. He said, look, I want to go there, pandemic, now the war. But you have, in the meantime, short of getting over there, Ed, been working to elevate Ukrainian photographers um, who are documenting the Russian invasion of their country. So this is both a personal and artistic mission for you, I assume. Yeah. I mean, my father was displaced by the war. He was a shepherd, and Hmm. he had just finished his rite of passage at 16, uh, where he had to take a flock of sheep to to the mountains and come back with all of them three months later by himself, you know, as a 16-year-old boy. And and then the next year, he was taken by the war. And and I just know how many of the men that came after the war and, and how many of them were just not the same. You know, it changes men. And and there's a real pain to think that what's happening and the kind of insanity of what's happening over there, but not just the people who die in the war, but those who will never be the same person that they were before the war, that the things that they've seen and experienced have changed them indelibly in a way that is harmful to families and to everything because they're not there in the way they should be, that they've been damaged by the things that they had to do and the things that they witnessed. So, I feel that pain that the country is going through for, and and the, the Ukraine has suffered so many different wars and different fronts, and has never really been left alone at peace. Yeah. So it's a continuation of this being in the middle of and being in the enviable position in a way, but not that enviable of having the resources. They had the prairies, they have the minerals, they have the mountains, they have so much. There's the breadbasket of Europe in a way, and and so it's always been having to fight on different fronts throughout its history and now has to experience this again. So so helping and trying to raise money for it and trying to help photographers capture this moment felt yeah. the right thing to do. The witness. Yeah, to witness it. Yeah. Just before I let you go, because I do need to let you go, um, back to St. Catharines, which, as we've been hearing from you, is intertwined with you, your family's story, the work, the motivation for you becoming an artist, all of those things. So tell me about this new piece you're working on. It's a sculpture at the GM plant, of the GM plant? Tell, tell me about this new piece. Well, it's kind of, it's, it's actually came about 
in a funny way, uh, as a result of working on a project with Paul Kennedy and CBC. And, hmm. and, and he was a neighbor of mine across the street on Dorothy Street in St. Catharines. And when we met at an event and we started talking and I just heard his voice and I said, you're Paul Kennedy, because <laughs> uh, he's got such a distinct voice. And then he said, did you know that I was the paper boy and your mother was really nice because she used to give me a tip? <laughs> so he, he remembered me. I didn't remember him that much. He was four years older, so I was only like five. But when I was there, I went by the old McKinnon's factory. It was being torn down and there is an old press that, you know, because I worked in that factory too, removing the PCB oils, I saw the press there and I knew the mayor, Walter Sednick at the time. And and I said, what's happening with that press and why is it there? And he said, I don't know. And we found out and it was just left behind because they couldn't sell it. It wasn't, it was in bad shape and so nobody wanted to buy it. But it's a 150,000-pound press. And again, as an artist, I was working with augmented reality and working in the world of 3D. But I thought, why don't I work in the world of real 3D? The idea was to take something and, and maybe do the impossible with it, which is to levitate it. You know, uh, <laughs> and, and so I just imagined this idea of taking that as a place near where it was actually lived and put it on a singular point. Ambitious, my friend, ambitious. Yeah, and to see if it's possible. And so, and we've discovered it is possible and that it just becomes like a sculpture. But it is also a kind of referent to the fact that capitalism leaves in its wake all kinds of relics because as we move on, we leave things behind. And all that work that was happening there now went to either China or Mexico. And so, but that changes people's lives and jobs and all of that. So, to leave one piece as a reminder in that whole new development of mm. what was there, I thought it would be great to have not only a sense of wonder, which I like to always invoke, which is how is this thing standing there? You know, how is it balancing? You know, I was able to work with a great engineering firm to to actually figure out how to do it. Yeah, I was going to ask you, how is it balancing there? <laughs> uh, it's on a massive pin, and we found a company that can hang the whole forge upside down by the one point that we want to put it on and then find the trajectory through the center of it and then drill a core through it and then put the core onto a pin. Wow. It's interesting. It's a reverse of how most public art happens. I'm, I kind of saw the idea and the opportunity and then went to the city, and then and then the, you know, and the city I got took this great idea. Council voted unanimously that they want to pursue it as an idea for this new brownfield development. So it's working with the city and going back to where I was born and raised, and kind of leaving something there that I think will invoke that wonder. And that, that's what I'm always interested in. And is something where people look at it and they go, they don't know why or how that happened, and you know, who came up with this crazy idea. You know, and it'll never go away. It's 150,000 pounds of cast steel. It'll be there for thousands of years, you know. So it is this curious relic to leave behind to the mm-hmm. future. When they look back and say, there's that anthropologist, Ed Bertinsky. <laughs> um, thanks. It's always good to talk to you. Thank Appreciate you, it. Thank you very much. Edward Bertinsky is a Canadian photographer, artist, and filmmaker. I'm speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. 
You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This summer's wildfires and heat waves and heightened storm events like the one that hit Atlantic Canada this weekend all echo the concerns and the fears laid out in Naomi Klein's 2014 book, This Changes Everything. In the years since, the Canadian writer and activist continued to be a leading figure in the climate justice movement, addressing protests and COP conferences and meeting with communities affected by climate change. But when the pandemic hit and shut all of that down, Naomi turned to the world of social media to fill her days. And that complicated, messy, misinformation-filled space she calls the mirror world is where Naomi Klein sets her new book, which is called Doppelganger. Naomi, good morning. Wonderful to speak with you, Pia. I was just saying your book's such a banger. Um, But before we talk about Doppelganger, last hour we were talking about the large climate protests happening around the world this weekend in the run-up to um, a UN climate summit. I know um, you're going to be marching in New York later today. Why do you feel it's important to still have these kinds of demonstrations? I think it's so important to get out of our isolation and our doom and despair and realize that actually we are the majority. Uh, we have a lot of company in uh, in, the, in those emotions, but when we come together, we also feel something else, which is the latent power of that, uh, and the power to organize, the power to organize as voters as well. This in New York, I think it's going to be pretty big. I think this is going to be the biggest show of strength from the climate movement since the huge uh, strikes in 2019. Uh, and it's ahead of a climate ambition summit that the UN Secretary General has called. It's the first time there's been a climate ambition summit. We've had lots of climate summits, but the message from the UN Secretary General is, you know, echoing Greta a little bit, like we've heard the blah, blah, blah. Now show us the actual policies that are going to get this disaster in check. This is the first in-person march since before the pandemic, the large one which you referenced in, in 2019. That was the one led by Greta Thunberg. You said um, about that, that, you don't believe that since that time, or maybe even earlier, that the climate justice movement has, quote, gotten its fire back. Do you think it's getting its fire back, given, you know, all the things I just said in the intro, all the climate crises we've seen over the past number of months, the hottest summer on record worldwide? I think we are. You know, even back in 2019, I think there was still a sense that we're talking about a a crisis that that is going to come. Whereas now this is a summer where the storms are hitting us as we speak. We've seen these devastating disasters from the flooding in Libya to the the fires in Maui, the pavement melting in Phoenix, and of course the wildfires across Canada. And, you know, that's just the barest of lists. So it's no longer about it being the future. It's no longer really about proving to people that it's real. What it's about is giving people a sense that we actually can have policies that are on the scale and with the urgency of the crisis itself. And that's what this is about. And within that context, Naomi, you talked uh, in an interview with The New Yorker about speechlessness when it comes to your own social activism and the climate crisis. Break that down for me a little bit more. What exactly do you mean by that? My own speechlessness uh, in the second year of the pandemic, I think, really had to do with, I, I suppose if I'm honest, Pia, I had had some hopes in the early months that the pandemic itself might be a kind of a wake up call because it 
it laid bare so many inequalities and injustices. Uh, the risks of the pandemic were so unevenly distributed. I was part of the privileged few who, who could stay home and work, but many, many people were, were bearing the risks to serve people like me. And there was a lot of solidarity expressed in the early days where we thought we really need to change based on what we have learned. And I think it was as movements started receding, as it became clear that we were going to return to a kind of normal that was itself a crisis, that I lost faith in a certain kind of writing that I have done my entire adult life, which was, you know, thesis, argument, fact, fact, fact. I just wasn't sure that that kind of writing was yielding any kind of results. So I guess that's the speechlessness that I tried to name in the book. And this all perfectly brings us to Doppelganger, which is your new book, which helped you work through some of those feelings that you're just talking about and where you've sort of found yourself. I don't want to say at a loss, but in a place where you're doing a lot of self-examination. This book, though, Naomi Klein, um, begins in a completely different place, though, and it begins with your relationship with your doppelganger, Naomi Wolf. So I'm just giving listeners a second to, to, to make the distinction, but to help them out, that Naomi, Naomi Wolf, American author and activist, rose to fame in the 1990s. Um, her book about third wave feminism, The Beauty Myth, got a lot of traction. Um, but since then, since that time, she has become a well-known conspiracy theorist and anti-vaccine crusader. So that's sort of the broad strokes. Two women named Naomi, both activists, both getting, you know, attention and, and, and saying things. But... For you, when did you go, oh, my goodness, um, I'm getting mistaken for Naomi Wolf, who, first of all, is not me, but also we come from very different political, social justice perspectives. Well, to be honest, this has been happening for a good 15 years. I've had all kinds of experiences with it. I, I, you know, I, I start the first chapter describing a scene where I'm overhearing people in a public restroom uh, talking about me, but it turns out not to be me. You know, I, I, I've had arguments with people who insist that they were at parties with me. <laughs> I'm like, no, I was not at that party. Um, I, and, and I don't think this is unique. We, 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 we all get confused with one another. I think people of color experience this much more than white people. Uh, you know, there's such a phenomenon of, of people refer to their quote unquote work twins, where uh, people who sort of come from the same ethnic background are perennially confused by colleagues with one another. The reason why I use my own identity confusion as as a entry point, uh, and it really is not a book about my doppelganger. It's, it is a book about the way in which reality seems to be doubling or uh, generally in mirroring. So I use this identity crisis of mine during the pandemic. So you asked, you know, when I realized it, when I realized it was a bit of a big problem and not just like the occasional confusion was, I'd say about eight months into the pandemic, when she, my doppelganger, really went hard into medical misinformation and disinformation about masks, about the pandemic itself, about vaccines, about vaccine verification apps. And she turned into quite a star on the right. She was on Fox News all the time. She was on Steve Bannon's podcast all the time. And when I would log online to try to get some simulation of the social relationships that tell me who I am because I wasn't able to see my friends or, you know, have those in-person relationships, I would just get inundated with references to her. And so I thought, this is a really interesting way to explore the dissolution of meaning and identity that is happening online generally. So she's like the white rabbit in Alice in Wonderland leading me down that rabbit hole. But the book is about the rabbit hole. <laughs> so you could have been, you know what, 
Naomi, Wolf, yeah, people confuse us, whatever. Like, I know who I am. People who I know know who I am. I'm just not going to engage, right? But as you say, this kind of, for you, really piqued your curiosity. Like, what is beyond people confusing us, what's happening here? And so your interest in her sort of descent into the anti-vaccine world of conspiracy theories, which I should say, I think surprised a lot of people who had been very interested and maybe even, you know, agreed with some of Naomi Wolf's uh, views in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, This draws you down into the misinformation rabbit hole where you want to go investigate it. So what did you learn about how disruptors, and especially as you reference people like Steve Bannon, right-wing mm-hmm. disruptors, hook people to their messaging? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. I think the fact that she's sort of my doppelganger is a lot less interesting than the fact that she is kind of a doppelganger of her former self. Like she has changed dramatically from the person that people might remember as the author of The Beauty Myth or an advisor to Al Gore uh, in the 2000 election. Um, now she's joining Steve Bannon in election denial. She did that in the midterm elections. This prominent feminist is now minimizing the U.S. Supreme Court's attacks on abortion rights, saying maybe it's a state's right issue. She takes pictures of her gun. And she is warning of civil war. I mean, it is a, a dramatic transformation. And she's not the only one. So many people who I speak to say, you know, sort of sort of voce, like, I can't talk to my brother anymore. I can't talk to my uncle anymore. It's like they're a doppelganger of themselves. So mm-hmm. what is happening? Why have so many people taken flight from reality? And I mean, frankly, I think it actually has to do in part what we started talking about, the fact that our shared home is in crisis, the fact that we are experiencing some revelations of some very hard realities to hold about the impacts of a a way, our way of life on the ability of our planet to be hospitable to us. That's a big deal. That's going to scramble our senses of self, even if we're not conscious that it's having an effect on us. Uh, the racial justice reckonings of this period also, I think, have been a profound identity challenge to white people, to settlers on these lands. And that is causing some morbid symptoms that I think we're seeing, even if it's not totally conscious. There's a huge amount of co-optation of the language of racial justice that goes on in these conspiracy worlds. So, for instance, the slogans of of the racial justice uprisings of, of the spring and summer of 2020, one of them was, I can't breathe. That gets twisted and, and warped into, I can't breathe because you're making me wear a mask. My body, my choice, the slogan uh, of the reproductive freedom movements becomes uh, my body, my choice. I don't want to get vaccinated. There have even been co-optations of orange shirts by wellness influencers. We, we know that every child matters, orange shirts, symbols of, of solidarity and calls for justice for the residential school genocide. Suddenly, orange shirts, shirts are for sale and they say Canada's second genocide and they're for working out during yoga, and they're referring to vaccines as a second genocide. That really happened. So what is going on with this co-optation at the same time as there is denialism uh, surging uh, about the unmarked graves, uh, at the same time as there are attacks on the right of students to learn true histories of their countries, and attacks on reproductive freedoms. So I think part of the appeal is you don't have to look at these hard truths. Let's just take a flight into fantasy. I think that's the deepest appeal. And then this is really, again, sets up very well for this idea that you talk about, about 
diving into what you call the mirror world. So mirrors give us a reflection. So for people who aren't against vaccine mandates or don't believe they'd easily fall for conspiracy theories, how are they being reflected? Well, I think part of it is is this taking of, of very powerful histories and slogans and causes and just absorbing them into this movement, which is about positioning themselves as the biggest victim. I think the section in the book, the head subtitle is, I too am a victim, the biggest victim. But one of the things I did for this project, Pia, as you know, from reading the book is I, I it's it, it's very much a work of cultural criticism, it, more than the sort of hard politics of, of, of my recent books. It's maybe back to my first book, No Logo, which had a lot more cultural criticism. So as I tried to make sense of my own doppelganger, I went deep into the literature of doppelgangers. And the truth is, that you may think you're looking at your doppelganger, but you're, you're ultimately looking in the mirror, as you say. You think you're looking at them, but you're really looking at yourself. And I think what disturbed me most as I went deep into listening to Steve Bannon, and I'm sorry to report that I have listened to hundreds of hours of, of Mr. Bannon's podcast, is sometimes I would listen to him and I would get this really vertiginous feeling because he sounded a little bit like me. Um, and he sounded a little bit like a doppelganger of the left. And by that, I'm not saying it's the same as the left, but I am saying that he's taking parts of what used to be the left agenda and mixing and matching it with a much more nefarious, racist, transphobic, xenophobic agenda. Uh, but, but sometimes I would listen and he would do these montages of um, clips from mainstream cable news shows that said, brought to you by Pfizer, brought to you by Moderna. Uh, you know, it would be like that. And it sort of reminded me of Media Education 101 from when I was an undergrad, where we were talking about the connection between a you know, handful of corporations and the kind of news that we got. But the reason why it was a little bit chilling to me was because I realized that that kind of sort of basic economic education was not really happening as much on the left. And we were becoming very reactive so that whatever the conspiracy world was saying, we were just saying the opposite. So if, if they were against big pharma, then we were saying, well, roll up your sleeves and get get your shot, which we should do. But we should also say, well, why are we getting our third and fourth shot? And huge parts of the planet have not even been offered their first shot. So I think that we became much too reactive and we're in this, you know, what I describe as a mirror world dance with one another. This speaks to me so <laughs> precisely. And I think it speaks to a lot of our listeners, Naomi, because so much over the last number of years. I take in a lot of media from different political viewpoints. I, I listen and watch and read from people that I might disagree or do disagree with, in fact. And sometimes I have to go, wait a minute, I just have to straighten this out, right? Before you were for big whatever, and now you're against, and I, I'm always like, it, it is cognitive dissonance. And I think I might be going a little bit mad. Like, I'm like, did I have that right back then? So, mm -hmm. so I think this resonates so much. Just who's saying what and what we used to attach certain kinds, if I can put that in a word, in quotations of people yeah. has really been upended. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, somebody, a figure like Bannon is very interesting because he is, he's a, he's a political strategist. So I think this is much less about what he believes and more about what he understands to be a path to power. He is interested in power. You know, he says this again and again on his podcast that the goal is to take back power for a hundred years. 
But what he understands is that it is very strategic to take the issues that your political opponent has not been using, has abandoned, and bring it into your tent. Not because you necessarily mean it, but because that's smart politics. So he did it in 2016 with um, working class uh, uh, voters in, in the Rust Belt who had voted for Democrats two, three times who promised to uh, put an end to the free trade deals that were offshoring jobs and then didn't. And you know, Trump started being the guy who promised that he was going to address that issue. And it was very, very resonant. Now he's doing that. And he calls it MAGA plus. This is something very important. Uh, So I am less interested in what my doppelganger is getting out of Steve Bannon than what he is getting out of her. One thing that I think your listeners might be surprised to hear is that she's on his show at at some points almost every day. Uh, She was on his show every single day for two weeks. They published a book together. They put out t-shirts together. I mean, this is the weirdest buddy movie of all time, Steve Bannon and Naomi Wolf, but it is real. What she is getting from him is a much larger platform than she's had in years. What he is getting from her is the hope of getting something that Trump has not done very well with, which is women voters, in particular, white women voters who didn't go along with their husbands last time. Um, And he's taking their COVID concerns around masks and vaccines and pivoting it towards transphobia, um, uh, anti-racist education, um, and and casting it all as child abuse and grooming. Uh, And, you know, I think if his past record is anything to go by, this is something we should pay close attention to. This is Sunday Magazine. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay, and I'm speaking with renowned author, filmmaker, and social activist Naomi Klein. Not to be confused with Naomi Wolf. Uh, let's. Uh, I want to talk about the truckers' convoy because you led me to a place that I hadn't thought about before in sort of thinking about this. You lay out how people, you know, get taken into conspiracy worlds and conspiracy theories and how they divide us politically and socially. You said that opposing political movements can seem like doppelgangers of each other. So the trucker convoy in Ottawa, in Windsor and Alberta and elsewhere, um, and the protests against the Keystone XL pipeline that you've yourself taken part in. This is all going to ruffle some people's feathers. So I want you to lay it out. Where are the parallels? Where do you see these two quote unquote movements, the trucker convoy protests against oil and gas pipelines, Keystone? Where are the parallels? Well, I think I just said that I, that I recognized the kind of sense of power and excitement, like we've taken over the city and, you know, look at our communal kitchen and hey, there's a kid's playground. Like that's the vibe at any time you have a mass action and there's that kind of sense of excitement, except for it was a warped doppelganger. I'm not saying it's a one to one equation. I'm not saying we're like flip sides of the same coin. I really don't believe that. Uh, I believe quite the opposite, that that in fact, real mass action that is fighting for changes that are going to uh, improve people's material circumstances are our best chance of of fighting this kind of conspiracy culture that is offering counterfeit solutions um, or no solutions at all. 
especially because the the call of the convoy was really all about wanting to not have to be responsible to one another, to not have to do things because there were more, more vulnerable people. Um, it was a cry of individualism and lots and lots of individuals getting together to say, leave us alone, which is very different than the kinds of mass actions that I've been a part of, which are about solidarity and, and standing up for each other. And I'm sure that there are people who are listening who dis- disagree with that. What worried me most when I watched that play out was, well, you know, why isn't the left actually out there on the streets? And, and you know, there were leftists who who came out eventually and, and challenged some, some of the, the convoyers. But what I mean is, well, why didn't we call for vaccine justice and lifting the patents and making sure everybody had their first shot with the kind of energy and force Politics hates a vacuum. And I think, you know, this comes back to what I was saying earlier about the way we became a little bit too obedient and towing the government party line, a lot of us, uh, during the pandemic. And I'm particularly worried about the precedent set by the uh, by the invoking of the Emergency Act, because the reason for it that Trudeau government officials talked about, including Christopher Friedland, quite explicitly, was that this was an economic disruption to the Canadian economy. And, you know, I'm speaking to you. The UAW in the U.S. has just called a strike. Their goal is to disrupt the economy. That is what a strike does. And I think if we're going to get the kind of change that we need in the face of the climate crisis, in the face of massive inequality, it's going to be disruptive. And uh, indigenous nations, you know, some of the only tools available are the tools of the blockade, are the tools of disruption. And that's the kind of reactivity that I worry about when I see people on the left cheering the invoking of the Emergencies Act. And that wasn't everyone. There were lots of people who raised questions. I think, wait a minute, where are our principles? We believe that we have the right to you know, to engage in this kind of disruption. Uh, it has to be peaceful, but but we have that right. Is it fair to say, you know, we always talk about how divided we are, right and left in the U.S., Republican and Democrat in Canada, you know, conservatives and liberals and so on and so forth, and even beyond the political realm, right? And I've probably been guilty of this too. I'm like, can't we just all get along and go back to that, like, unity thing that I, th- I, I maybe <laughs> incorrectly thought we had? But when you say, like, look, we're in a time of disruption. I guess the question becomes, should we just try to be being like we all get along or should, say, people with common goals, even though they might be on opposing sides of a political spectrum, band together? Well, I think, <laughs> you know, I think we're on a dangerous path on a lot of different levels. Um, and, you know, I, I say that in the context of the climate emergency, in the context of surging authoritarianism around the world um, and all of these different political players who who are, who are engaging in this mix and match of uh, of issues taking issues from the from the left and mixing them with an explicitly racist agenda it's happening around the world so I don't think it's a go you know go along to get along moment I think it is a moment to be very very clear on the stakes of this moment and what it will take to get to some kind of stable ground and it requires strategy so I guess I feel, Pia, that sometimes the discourse around reaching across the aisle can be used to say, well, we should be making alliances with people who really, really oppose our very existence, um, who, uh, you know, have a really nefarious agenda. But I think we look at history 
every victory for the fascist right is also a story of fragmentation, uh, division, and a failure to make strategic alliances on the anti-fascist left, which isn't to say it's all our fault, but it is to say the stakes are very, very high and we need to be extremely strategic in, in how we build alliances, but also how we build a counterpower to those forces. A lot of this, I think, is the loss of trust, um, a broken trust in our public institutions, in our politicians, in facts, in journalists. Mm -hmm. We face all that, right, on a daily basis. Where does trust fit into this? And, and for you, Naomi Klein, and like, how do we even start rebuilding that? And maybe the trust is just, hey, can we just talk? Or can I yell at you? Or can I protest against you? Or whatever it is. But can we have some kind of quote unquote conversation or be in dialogue with one another? I, te I teach university students um, at UBC and and before that at Rutgers, and there's definitely a a feeling uh, among a lot of a lot of young people who I speak to of a deep disappointment and lack of trust in leadership. A lot of it has to do with you know what I what I describe in the book is a rupture between words and meaning. So here we've been talking about you know sort of far right wild conspiracies that clearly represent a breakdown between words and meaning. You know, uh, Steve Bannon now positions himself as an anti-fascist. So like nothing means anything, right? But it's too easy to just say, well, they are the ones that are shredding language because the, the reason why people are marching in the streets around the world and in New York City right now is because centrist leaders like Joe Biden say all the right things about the climate crisis, but then approve new oil pipelines and new extraction projects. And what I think we most need if we want to rebuild trust is a project of reuniting words with actions. You know, it's really easy to say lots of wonderful things, but we're in the era of the performance, right? And I think social media has massively amplified this in the sense that it's words are so cheap right now. It's so easy to perform oneself and have that be have nothing to do with material changes in the real world. So, you know, I don't think we get out of this trust crisis with fact checking and content moderation and deplatforming. I don't think it is just a crisis that plays out in the world of words. I think it plays out in material circumstances. And when people see a connection between what our leaders say and how they are living their lives, like how our lives change, then I think trust will, will gradually be rebuilt. No matter who I talk to, and I think it, you will say the same and our listeners will say the same, where people stand on the political spectrum, everyone's nervous, mm -hmm. right? It's a nervous time. They're scared. I think that's like really the, the piece of unity, like the through line of everyone. Everyone's scared. Like it seems very unsettling the world right now. And um, you say something at the end of Doppelganger. It's, I'll read the whole quote in a sec, but it, it really comforted me when you say, that's okay. Here's the quote. Uh, you say, the known world is crumbling that's okay. It needed to crash. Now in the rubble, we can make something more reliable, more worthy of our trust, more able to survive the coming shocks. So thank you for making me feel comfortable by saying that's okay, that the world is crumbling. Um, but what do you want that world to look like realistically, Naomi? I think if there's a guiding principle that I think we that we need, it is a rejection of the idea that some people can be sacrificed, that some places can be sacrificed. 
you know, if we look at the number of people who are being forced out of their homelands right now because of wars, because of climate disasters, the issue is not just the coming weather disruptions that we need to think about. We need to think about what kind of people we want to be as we face these shocks. So when I, when I think about what that stability is, it is a core belief that we are equal to one another. And just because somebody lives in another country, just because somebody doesn't look like us does not mean that we can come up with some sort of rationale that says, well, we can just watch them drown um, or we can just let them disappear. That's the monster at the gate that, that I worry most about. And it isn't just out there, it's inside. And that's the thing about doppelgangers. You think you're looking at them, but they're really holding up a mirror. It's always, um really important and pleasure to listen to you, Naomi. You always give me lots, so many new things to think about. Um, so thanks for this book. And thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it so much. Thank you so much, Pia. I really enjoyed it. Naomi Klein's latest book is called Doppelganger, A Trip Into the Mirror World. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay, and you are listening to the Sunday Magazine podcast. It's been just over a year and a half since Russia's invasion of Ukraine began. For Ukrainians, it's upended life itself. For civilians who've become soldiers, for those who fled, for residents who remain. The changes to society have been vast. They have been many. But one place you may not expect to see them reflected is on the pages of a fashion magazine. Since the war began, Vogue Ukraine has shifted away from covering beauty to covering the battlefield in its own way. Vanya Brickelin is Vogue Ukraine's editor-in-chief. Hi, Vanya. Thank you for joining me. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. It's September. It is September is considered the most important month in the fashion calendar when all the Fashion weeks around the world get underway. Many of the big magazines put out their marquee issues. So, Venya, what is going through your mind this fashion season as a Ukrainian, as the editor-in-chief of Vogue Ukraine? Well, we are back to print uh, this year. So my primary uh, concern is delivering a great magazine. And we uh, have two more issues to go. We're closing the fall one and then there's going to be a winter one. So honestly, the stories that we're working on for, for the print issue are of my, this is my main focus for now. Tell me what's in this issue. What kind of stories would I see? Well, since we uh, got back into print, which we did after one year into the full war, uh, full on war in Ukraine, we relaunched the magazine, uh, the print edition, running stories that are covering all sorts of talents and people that are not just fighting the, uh, for the cause, but also promoting Ukrainian creative scenes. So most of the stories we're running right now are on artists, people from culture field, athletes, politicians, volunteers, you name it inspiring stories that will help our readers to pull through these times. Yeah, tell me more about that. As you say, in difficult times, people need inspiration. Well, I think uh, what we at Vogue Ukraine are doing right now is trying to be this kind of ray of hope and optimism. I don't think we can allow ourselves the luxury of being this kind of escapist outpost. And we feel there's a responsibility for us to absolutely reflect on what's going on, but do it in a meaningful and inspiring, as I said, way. So, and there are so many amazing stories that our editors are working on pretty much every single day. Um, what we're 
doing right now is trying to tell the stories from the folk perspective from with with the voice with the tone of voice that we um at Vogue Ukraine uh, have been known for and using our expertise and our reach in the world to not just tell these stories inside our country, but also to spread these amazing stories across the globe and also to show another side of Ukraine that maybe people, you know, that follow the world news don't necessarily see or understand or have access to at the moment. And I know you've um, heard from people in hard-hit places like Kharkiv, about why this magazine, this Vogue Ukraine, a fashion magazine, has been so important to them during the past year and a half. What, what have you heard from people? It's, um, it's actually a great story that's been such a motivation for our team. And we, you know, since the full-scale war started, we went on hold with the print, but there was never any question for us that we're going to come back. We were thinking of what, you know, what the reasoning should be and what kind of product we want to deliver and what kind of stories we want to tell. And there's been heated discussions. And to this day, we are, you know, collectively um, discussed what kind of product we're doing and why we're doing it. And we had we, we got an email from our uh, distribution manager who basically told us that he was reached with by our, one of local distributors in Kharkiv, a city that's been heavily shelled by the Russian military since the first day. And people there, they will literally come to news to newsstand asking for, for Vogue magazine. And for us, it was such a ray of hope also on our side, knowing that people need this and people are looking to, to see it, not just a, and not exactly as maybe source of, you know, fashion inspiration or any kind of like cultural survey, but also as a, literally like a physical symbol of, of normal life that's been taken away from them. So for us going back to, to print and being there on a newsstand and for people to see the familiar logo, you know, in a, in a cover of the magazine, it's sort of like sending a message to people that also that there's going to, you know, we will go back to, um, normal life, whatever that might mean at this point. This is a big responsibility, as you're saying there. You have to balance giving hope and inspiration, but not being, you know, fluffy in very dark times for your country. It it absolutely is. And this, I think, is what keeps us on our, you know, tiptoes every single day and our team, we discuss every single piece that goes, whether it goes online or whether it goes in print. And I think one of the biggest responsibilities for us now is to be sensible to, you know, to the context of what's happening, what what kind of life people are living. And if the landscape is changing pretty much every day, you know, with the news coming in every morning and all these, you know, awful shellings and attacks are usually happening at night. So... Sometimes we just like wake up and start our day absolutely rearranging the content that we've prepared for the day. And some stories might sound, might look more relevant than others. Some stories feel unnecessary or I wouldn't say tone deaf, but just, you know, just out of context. So, yes, that's really a lot of walking on a tightrope, mm-hmm. I would say. I read, for example, that um, the beauty editor went from covering like skincare 
to how to writing articles about how to survive a chemical attack, how to survive rape. Yes, this is true. My my absolutely per, my personal hero, Alena Ponomarenka, our beauty editor, she literally recalibrated the whole section, and we st- we do still run uh, stories on nail design and and you know and beauty treatments as also a sign of people like you know trying to live their normal life and people still are interested in that paradoxically or not but we've added a lot of content that you would not normally imagine us running on our platforms um everything that you mentioned before those stories are 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 real those stories are what we do and you know uh, over the last year and a half we've had such a positive response from our readers and i think they really have appreciated that we don't shy away from these topics and not try to pretend that you know they're not relevant and i think that's really a big motivation inspiration for us as a team as well so this has been a big pivot and as you said it's a tightrope and you and your team are walking on that tightrope with every story and, and every edition in the wider fashion industry venya um i remember when you were at milan fashion week um, when Russia invaded Ukraine last February, in February of 2022. And at that time, you had said, quote, this industry is really tone deaf, and Milan has shown that this week. I think what we've seen later has been unprecedented response from the industry. And, you know, bigger, big fashion brands live in Russian market and making statements. I don't think we've seen that uh, before. So in that sense, that I think that's make that that has made an impact. Um, I don't know whether creatively that should be addressed. I don't. I don't think so. Uh, but I think that actions matter. And in the end of the day, there's what those were taken in on on a grand on a, on a big on a big scale. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay, and Fashion Month is upon us. I'm speaking with Vogue Ukraine editor-in-chief Venya Brikalin. Venya, last year, um, when your magazine collaborated with American Vogue on this issue that had uh, Ukraine's first lady um, on the cover, and President Zelensky also appeared in the feature, there was some criticism that that piece romanticized war or that the first lady was using Vogue to push a message. How do you respond to that, and how do you consider the influence of your magazine during these times of war? I think that the, the feedback that I've heard and seen from Ukrainians, and I think it's the most important voice uh, for me in this situation, has been uh, mostly positive. I understand that there are always people that can be negative about things and they have all the right to, 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 to have these opinions. I know that it really mattered for Ukrainians and mattered as a, you know, as a sign of being seen and heard and our tragedy and the hardship and the pain and the trauma that people are dealing with every le- uh, with uh, with every day, not being, you know, shoved under the rug. So the, I, I, I know that it inspired a lot of people and a lot of people were very proud of that uh, project and they were very proud to see Ms. Zelenska on, on 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 the cover. You had said to me earlier that um, 
of course, this is a magazine for Ukrainians in these very tough times, but also to the world. And near the start of the war, Vogue Ukraine called for a fashion embargo on Russia, a call that many designers and shops met at the time. What role do you want your magazine to play on the world stage? I think first and foremost, we are a platform to promote contemporary Ukrainian culture on a bigger scale. So saying, I, I mean, not just fashion designers, but also actors, athletes, people that, you know, are launching startups and doing amazing things in science, in, in public service, in volunteer work. So I think as being an international brand, we have the um, expertise and we have the credentials to do so. I think that's the most important part of what we're doing. And also to be, you know, an advocate for our, an advocate for our country and to represent what we as a nation stand for and what we as a culture can contribute to the world. Mm -hmm. Russia has long been seen as a huge market for designers and the luxury industry. So when you kind of look at where the fashion industry in the West um, and around the world is in uh, September of 2023, do you see the impact the war has had on the industry at large? Well, I know for sure that a lot of companies, they still don't perform in Russia. They don't have business in Russia. So this has been going on for, for a while and I'm interested to see where it's going to end. Um, but fashion is such a huge business and obviously that territory is not what's driving the, the business and economic growth. And there are areas in the world that are much more uh, of much bigger importance and represent bigger market value. So I don't think that um, for brands, not working with Russia is a crucial decision that's going to affect them in a longer in a longer term. Vogue magazine has um, been at the forefront of uh, pivoting during times of conflict. If you think back, it has this history of publishing during wartime. British Vogue published during World War II, um, but and it, at that time, its content shifted as well, gave advice, for example, on how to stretch wartime household rations and also tried to foster hope and community, the same things that Vogue Ukraine is trying to do now. When you look at that history and think of what Vogue has done, how does that all sit with you? Well, it's a, it's a great example of what a you know, what journalistic instinct should be about and also the responsibility that um, fashion magazine or magazine or media in general might have and the impact that they might have. Uh, these stories, you know, what you mentioned, especially like Lee Miller's iconic uh, reportage from, you know, for, from Leeds in London and uh, liberated Paris and then uh, concentration camps in Germany. Um, those are great examples. And of course, this had been a huge inspiration for us. And I can assure you that those were brought up so many times on our editorial meetings where we had these conversations with our fellow editors of what we at Vogue Ukraine should or should not be doing or how we should be addressing or not addressing that. So I think that's absolutely a, a historic precedent and something that we are very proud of. And I don't know whether I would say that we are a, you know, 
continuation of that, but I think that absolutely gave us sort of point of reference for where we are now as a company, I mean, Vogue Ukraine. So when I as a Canadian or other Canadians, you know, maybe seek out uh, a copy if possible of Vogue Ukraine or go online and and we see what you're writing about and what you're posting, what do you want us to think about as we also continue to hear and care about this war in your country? Well, I think our message would be is that there's hope and we have future and there are so many incredible people from all walks of life, full of life, full of energy, full of drive to overcome these difficulties. And, you know, one of the um, sort of slogans, one of the mottos that we have in our team is that every obstacle is an opportunity. And I think this is what's, so, what's been so great with Ukrainians and how we face um, face the, the war is that we don't give up. We're not giving up. And also... I mentioned it before, for us as a, t- as a team, it was important to go back to print, to be there and be doing what we know how to, to do the best and just stay in the business and being there for the people. So I think, yeah, just that life continues, life goes on and life will win and we will win. I appreciate you so much telling us the story of Vogue and... Um Keep up the good work. I wish you the best. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Venya Brickelin is the editor-in-chief of Vogue Ukraine. So that's it for this round of the Sunday Magazine podcast. Our producers are Sarah Joyce Battersby, Tracy Fuller, Levi Garber, Andrea Huang, Pete Mitten, and Aronde Williams. We had additional help this week from audio technicians Emily Chiaravesio and Juliana Romanic. Our executive producers are Brian Colton and Donna Dingwall. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Thank you for lending us your ear here on the Sunday Magazine podcast. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.